Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Zach. And I'm Seth. And we're the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's, That's right. That's right. That's my line. You can't, you can't double up on it. I don't. But then you're going to mute yourself out, so that it, they'll be sounding I, like I, I'm complaining to nobody. Yeah, I probably will. Well, I don't know. We'll see so how I edit this the, episode. The power you funny. have with the editing. I know. I can make you say so many things that you never knew you could say. Zach is the best brother. <laughs> Wow, that'd be the first time you heard that. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway. Yeah, so uh, welcome back to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. So, uh, Zach, what have you been recently been playing? Seth, recently I've been playing Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, specifically the GameCube version, uh, which is actually a really hard to find game because it was released in a, a weird time for the GameCube's lifespan, and thus uh, it just has been sought after and is, is pretty expensive. I think like a copy of it goes for like $80, where Chamber of Secrets goes for like $5. So in any case, uh, the GameCube version uh, came out in 2003 and was created by by Warthog Games. They also made the PS2 and the Xbox version. Pretty much all three games are identical with some minor differences. A fun fact actually about Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, the GameCube, PlayStation 2, and Xbox version, this game came out after Chamber of Secrets. So basically Warthog had made the Chamber of Secrets game for the GameCube, PS2, and Xbox, and there was a gap year between Chamber of Secrets and Prisoner of Azkaban. So EA Games was like, hey, we need a Harry Potter game so we can keep milking this cash cow. And Warhog Games was like, hey, we have all these assets from Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Let's just make the first game. And they did exactly that. The entire castle layout, 100% the same. The grounds layout, 100% the same. The spells, 100% the same. The only difference is the voice actors and the plot. To be fair to EA and Warhog Games, it's the only difference in the books. That is actually true i mean hogwarts technically wouldn't change from year to year in defense of the pc games which i love the pc games the second game in the pc games does reuse some of the same assets but mostly in terms of the level structure of the entranceway to hogwarts it actually does redesign hogwarts to be a bit more open and have a bit more ability to explore so i think there's a way of making it feel familiar but not be identical which is not what they did with warthog games it's literally a copy and paste job and i think it's important for our listeners to know that the harry potter and the sorcerer's stone game or the philosopher's stone if you are overseas 
I was going to say British, but I guess it's anyone that's not us. Pretty much everyone that's not us in like the French where they call it the School of Sorcerers. Uh, for those to know, the Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone games came out in 2001 on the PlayStation 1, PC, the Game Boy Advance, and the Game Boy Color. And they are all different companies and entirely different games. There is, though, one intersection that blends through a number of them. Not all of them, but a number of them. And that's the Flipendo spell. Yes. Which is not a spell that exists in the Harry Potter world. Well, I guess it does exist in the Harry Potter world. It doesn't exist in the books. Well, it does exist, though, in Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, the stage play... Oh. I assume the writers of the play, I assume one of them had played the video game and was like, we gotta put in Flipendo. I guess it's as, uh, some sort of blast effect. It's called a knockback charm. So knockback it, charm. the purpose of it in the game is to move blocks or to fight enemies. And we actually maybe have to do an episode on the Harry Potter series. There is a, a YouTuber called Flandrew who does two very good YouTube videos about comparing all of the different Harry Potter games against each other. Yeah, there's another YouTuber that I am like follow and I'm in his Discord uh, named Phil of Glimmer who has done a breakdown of all of the PC games and also has gone through like some of the PlayStation games. Anyway, uh, Seth, what about you? What have you been recently playing? I am playing a game that I've played in the past and I've been doing this a lot lately as I go back and I'm trying to beat games. So I'm sorry if I'm talking about a game that I've mentioned a few times. This is actually a game that I, we've mentioned a number of times and it's Desperados 3 or as we like to call it Desperados III uh, since it has three Roman numerals. So Desperados 3 is a um, story driven tactical stealth game instead of set in uh, historical Japan which is where Shadow Tactics is set. It's set in the Ruthless Wild West. It is also done by Mimi Games, published by TH Nordic, which the previous games were published by a different publisher, but their next game is going to be self-published. Mimi Games is trying to do a self-published game that's also being funded by the German government, because they're a German developer. I really hope that their next game is another stealth-based tactics game, because they were a lot of fun. Uh, Desperados 3 is the spiritual successor to Desperados 1 and 2, which were not done by Mimi Games. Uh, they were done by a company called Spellbound, and they were earlier games uh, since Spellbound was founded in 1994 and went defunct by 2012. They're actually known for their Desperado series. They also did a Robin Hood The Legend of Sherwood stealth based tactical game, which I owned and was a lot of fun. I didn't own the original two Desperados, but I may, after beating Desperados 3, go back and play them since they would be similar ish games. Desperados Wanted Dead or Alive was released in 2001. Desperados 2 Cooper's Revenge was in 2006 and Desperados 3 was released in 2021 and I think it was actually released in 2020. And you play as John Cooper who is the son of the guy who's the main character in Desperados 2. You're kind of like a stealthy bounty hunter who plays similar to Hyoto in Shadow Tactics but is a little different because he has guns. There's also a, a woman that that you play is, is Kate O'Hare, who has like the disguise ability and the ability to like blind people temporarily. There is this guy who joins you named Dr. McCoy, who is a, a hitman who is also a doctor. That's fun. And he is my favorite character because he is really just like a, a merc for hire and will kind of do any job for any kind of money. But he also has to remind everyone that he's a doctor. And I always question, is he actually a doctor? 
doctor and or and if he is a, actually a doctor is he actually a medical doctor but he does have bandages and a doctor's kit so i assume he's a doctor does he say damn it i'm a doctor a lot no that'd be funny because that's a star trek thing he does have kind of like a voice like dr mccoy kind of like deadpan type of like a uh, voice that he has in star trek so he's definitely modeled after that particular doctor there's also a trapper by the name of hector who has a trap named bianca that he loves like a big bear trap and finally there's isabel who is a in, in the description it says a mysterious lady from new orleans but she is a hoodoo practicing bayou lady who is known as a swamp witch and she has kind of cool powers that are unique to this game a lot of the other characters have similar powers to characters that had shadow tactics and after playing like 40 hours of shadow tactics you kind of see the similarities when you start playing desperados but isabel has entirely unique abilities where she can change change somebody so whatever you do to one person it happens to that other person which is kind of cool so you kill somebody and the other person you know like across the screen dies as well you can also mind control people and then when you mind control them uh, you can then go off and shoot somebody and you can get away with killing the person in front of everybody because somebody else did it and it wasn't you so it's overall been a, a great game I'm almost done with it I'm coming to the end of chapter two I believe there are three chapters I'm on the 12th mission and there are 16 missions total before the DLC, which has an additional 14 missions, but I, I feel like I'm very much farther than where I've, I've been previously, and it's it's been really good. I've been really enjoying it, and it's it's a really good game that gets you to think, so sorry to bring it up again, I guess, but... Uh, no, no worries. I bring up games that I've recently played multiple times. Uh, in any case, we're talking about something that's not related to tactics games today. Today, we're talking about Commodore, and specifically we'll talk about the Commodore 64, which are is a pretty well-known machine i would say um however i think i can speak for seth and say that neither of us have memories of this machine yeah so zach and i are children from the 90s i was born in the 80s and zach was born in the 90s and the commodore was really popular in the 80s and by the 90s it had already kind of gone out of favor we missed the video game crash is what happened with zach and i conceivably seth and i could have been brought up with an Amiga, which was created by Commodore, but our parents opted for a Packard Bell 486, which is the computer that we, we grew up with. Theoretically, in an alternate timeline, maybe our family had an Amiga and we, we were familiar with Commodore in some form. But today we're talking about Commodore. Uh, we'll talk a bit about the history of the company and what brought it to the C64. And maybe someday down the line, we'll talk about the Amiga, which is a whole separate thing. But uh, to begin us off, Commodore was founded in 1958 by Jack Trammell and Manfred Cap when they formed a partnership to sell used and refurbished typewriters. Trammell and Cap had met while working at ace typewriter repair in new york and came up with the idea while working together early in their career together they acquired a dealership to sell adding machines and were able to get the exclusive rights to the everest brand adding machines in the canadian market by the late 1950s the adding machine business had begun to dry up but they were able to strike a deal with a czechoslovakian company to sell portable typewriters in canada they incorporated in october 1958 as commodore portable typewriter specifically to sell these portable typewriters they had some early success and they began expanding they actually purchased a factory in west germany to begin manufacturing their own typewriters in the 1960s prior to this they sold a portion of their company to atlantic acceptance corporation which was a large canadian financial firm in order to bolster their financial prospects this proved to be a good choice for commodore at least 
until 1965, when Atlantic's acceptance collapsed due to failing to make a payment. It was soon revealed that Atlantic acceptance may have been committing massive amounts of financial fraud, and Commodore was directly implicated in the scheme. However, there was found to have been no evidence of any wrongdoing on Commodore's part. However, they had their reputation a bit tarnished at the time, and they were also in very bad financial place because one of their major financers just disappeared, essentially. So, Tremel opted to secure a bridge loan, and to do this had to put the German factory up as collateral. In order to handle this deal, they worked with a financier, Irving Gould. However, they ultimately were not able to pay um, Mr. Gould for his services. So Tremel sold 17.9% of Commodore to Gould and Gould was made chairman of the board. <laughs> After this, Tremel was introduced to Japanese electronic calculators, such as those made by Casio. Commodore began to sell calculators themselves, but they soon went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Texas Instruments. Texas Instruments had previously only supplied parts for calculators, but now they decided that they were going to hop right into it and start getting a piece of that calculator pie. Commodore tried to cut their prices by purchasing chip supplies, such as MOS technology. After acquiring MOS, Tremel made chip designer Chuck Peddle the chief engineer at Commodore. So get around TI's kind of like, hey, we're supplying the pieces to the calculators now we are making calculators type deal commodore went off and just bought a another chip supplier now with buying the chip supplier commodore kind of opened up they were like wow this is actually like a whole nest of things that we can do with this beyond making calculators and in fact texas instruments would actually go and push them out of the calculator market so they they had to then they're like we bought this mos technology to help us with chips for calculators and now we can't sell calculators because Texas Instruments pushed us out. So we have to do something else. So let's talk about MOS first. Before being acquired by Commodore, they were in the process of building a new microprocessor. Many of the people at MOS had previously worked on the Motorola 6800 and they wanted to make something that was both inexpensive and quicker. So after a brief legal issue with Motorola, MOS eventually created the MOS 6502 microprocessor. To show the power of the 6502, Chuck Peddle designed the Kim Kit computer. Uh, this was a single board, and the board used a calculator-style numpad to program in assembly language, but could be connected to a dumb terminal if you owned one. Now, we've talked about the 6502 chip before. The 6502 is a chip that would later become used in systems like the Nintendo Entertainment System. In fact, 6502 assembly language is what you would require to code for the Nintendo Entertainment System. So Pedal designed the Kim 1, and the Kim 1 was actually pretty successful for MOS, uh, largely because it was inexpensive. It, it, at the time, it cost less than $500, which was in 1976. Today, that would be about $2,540, but comparatively, back then, systems that you could buy, including terminals and stuff, would probably run you about seven dollars to $800 in total. So you're looking at a significant price cut having the Kim. Now let's go back to Commodore. So Pedal, now working essentially for Commodore, was able to convince Tremel that home computers were a more lucrative business than the calculator 
calculator market, partially because they were being pushed out of the calculator market. And he got to work on the first home computer for Commodore, the PET. Now, the PET, or Personal Electronics Transactor, was released in 1977. It was a fairly large, single-board computer housed in a metal case. Attached to this case was not only a green monochrome monitor, but also a very tiny keyboard and a tape drive for data. A later revision of the machine removed the tape drive and expanded the keyboard to be full-sized. Now, the PET was a fairly simple device. It was not able to display any graphics, and it had no sound synthesizer. It could display 128 characters, along with the ability to toggle to lowercase text. Beyond your standard text characters, the PET introduced a series of new characters called PET ASCII, or Petsky, which could be used with some clever programming to create rudimentary graphics because you're starting to move into like ZZD where yeah. you get like little weird faces and that little weird face could be a character. The uh, the 8-bit guy, the YouTuber, he does he does a lot of work with this era of technology and uh, he sh shows off kind of what you can do with using creative graphics when you don't have graphics. He actually created a game that runs on the pet called Attack of the Petski Robots. Um, it's yes. entirely yep. programmed in Petski graphics. It's since been ported to other systems, including the Genesis, which I definitely am going to pick up a copy for but um he started off with a, a version for the pet and it's really impressive to see what the pet could do with such limited um graphics right well with no graphics I and mean, just with just characters the pet wasn't a gaming computer however and to this day there are only a handful of games that were ever made for it including the 8-bit guys game it was a uh, primarily built for academic and business use. Computers were still not something that everybody used, and we were still kind of going from a macro level down to a micro level. Um, so this was this is after the time period where computers were an entire room, but computers still had tape technology for storage and stuff like that. I'm talking about like reel-to-reel -reel tapes for storage. Now, Commodore's next venture was something that could be used for both business and pleasure, and that's the VIC-20. The VIC-20 was released in 1980 and was sold for $299.95. So today, it would be about buying something that was about $1,000 back then. Like the PET, it was based on the MOS 6502 processor. It was smaller than the PET, being only around 1.8 kilograms, which is about four pounds. It did not have a built-in monitor, but it was able to output color to a color TV if you owned one. It could also output sound. In lieu of a built-in cassette player, the VIC-20 now used a data port that could connect to a data set or a five and a quarter drive. It also, more importantly, had a cartridge slot and an Atari joystick compatible port. The VIC-20 also, unlike the PET, was able to display some different types of graphics. While it does not support true bitmap mode, programmers could create their own custom character sets and use those in their programs. This allowed people to create games and at least 400 commercial games were available for this machine, which is a pretty big catalog for 1980. As the VIC-20 was competing with other computers like the Apple II, TRS-80, and the Atari 800, it was important for them to sell the system as both a business machine and a gaming machine, which included having commercials featuring William Shatner, where he showed off both games and non-entertainment software. The VIC-20 did fairly well. 
It's widely regarded as the first personal computer to sell 1 million units and ultimately led Commodore's next venture, the Commodore 64, or the C64. The C64 came out in January of 1982. While it was a worthwhile machine, it was primarily developed to be something that could outperform the growing video game console market. MOS developed something called the SID chip, the SID, which was designed for audio. Initially, Commodore intended to release a dedicated gaming console using both the SID chip and a new video chip called the VIC-2, but this ultimately was scrapped. At the same time, as the cancellation, the developer of the SID chip, Bob Yanes, and the architect of the VIC-20, Bob Russell, were thinking of ways to build upon an improve the available Commodore computers. They proposed to Tremil a low-cost follow-up to the VIC-20, and Tremil agreed. He did, however, ask that the machine be 64 kilobytes of RAM. Which actually, back then, was a risk for Commodore 2 to take. 64 kilobytes of dynamic RAM chips would sell for about uh, 100 a piece, but Tremel was looking at the market at the time and saw that the price of RAM chips were dropping. Also, Commodore didn't necessarily have to worry all the time about price of chips. They had their own chip fab, so they were able to produce the needed parts and keep the costs as part of their corporate overhead. The C64 launched for $595, or about $1,700 today. Now, this may seem like a substantial amount of money, even for back then. But as a, as a fun note and part of a little marketing gimmick, Commodore did offer a $100 rebate on purchase for anyone who traded in another video game console or computer, which, hey, that could be a reason alone for you to buy a Commodore 64 if you were convinced by the advertisements. The machine itself looks a lot like a VIC-20. In fact, I wouldn't blame you if you looked at a VIC-20 and confused it for a Commodore 64. The cartridge port, though, is smaller, as it does take smaller-sized cartridges. It also has two controller ports instead of one. The machine could also be connected to a disk drive or dataset. The disk drive for the C64 was actually kind of unique. It had its own microprocessor and ROM, which meant that the machine machine could run its own routines. Essentially, the disk drive was a computer, and this was done so that Commodore could save space, as no memory had to be allotted to run a disk operating system, which something like the Apple II or the TRS-80 required. Commodore also had their data port available to be used with other accessories. One of those peripherals was actually a modem. So you could connect a modem to your Commodore 64 and allow it to communicate with bulletin board systems. Uh, these boards would often host things like MUDs, discussion boards, or even cracked and pirated software so that you could get your games illegally. The C64 was also able to play games like Habitat, which was a graphical online interactive environment produced by LucasArts. Now, the C64 was also able to use hardware sprites, which meant games could be more detailed, and there were certainly games. Some lists I found online have indicated that there could be up to at least 2,000 games that were available at some point in the C64's lifespan or after. Afterwards. One of the lists I found did have some more recent games listed, uh, such as another game by the 8-bit guy, Planet X2. Still, those are games that run on a C64, I would count them, uh, even if they are new homebrew titles. But 2,000 games is still a substantial number. Now, this includes everything at the time, from games like Donkey Kong and Double Dragon, which were arcade staples, to more complex games like SimCity and Pool of Radiance, which was a gold box game. So, to 
kind of talk about uh, how the sales worked with Commodore. Now, the C64 were coming out kind of in a tumultuous time with the video game crash happening in, in 1983. Commodore, though, had the benefit of being a computer and a video game system. So it was kind of primed to be able to kind of ride the wave of the video game crash. Now, initially when it came out, it had some stiff competition it, there was the two Atari systems in the market, and we're talking about computer systems, not video game systems. So there was the 8-bit 400 and the 800. There was also the Apple II that was out. However, within the first year, Commodore did it did start at the $599.95, though they did cut their price down to $300, which would have been equivalent to going from $1,600 to $800 within the first year. This helped sales along, and then the video game crash. So Commodore really pushed aggressively into the market. And as Zach mentioned earlier, they had a rebate that offered $100, which would have been almost equivalent to $300 if you traded in your own console, your old console. In fact, some retailers would sell customers a Timex Sinclair 1000 for $10 with the purchase of a Commodore 64, which the customer could send in a Commodore to get $100 rebate back. The rebate system was so successful for Commodore, it led Timex Corporation to leave the computer market. Their price tactics also led to another competitor getting pushed out of the market, Texas Instrument. Texas Instrument wanted to make computers, and Commodore said no. And Jack Trammell felt it was his personal mission to push Texas Instruments out of the computer market and continued to cut his prices further and further to beat Texas Instrument out. And they did. They folded. And Commodore felt vindicated since back in the 70s, Texas Instrument put them out of the calculator market. So they came back hard and hit them out of the, uh, the computer market. And this kind of activity and this type of cutting down to the bottom was, in a way, um, really pushing all that crap out. All those other, like, video game consoles, and all those all that junk that was out there that led to the video game crash, Commodore kind of accelerated it by being like, send us your junk, take a Commodore, which was still a computer and not a dedicated video game console. Now, by the end of 1983, Commodore had sold about 500,000 units, but more importantly, they were one of the only low-end computers around. Video game companies who made it out of the video game crash alive started to develop more and more for the Commodore 64, since it was easy to code for, and many of the game companies that had games on the Commodore had their game sales stay intact through the crash. In fact, many companies that we've talked about, such as SSI, Microprose, and Accolade, were developing for the Commodore first, as the most units would sell there. All the while, Commodore kept bringing the price down. In 1984, Commodore sold 1 million units, and by 1986, they hit 3.5 million units. By 1988, the video game console companies were starting to come back. I mean, Nintendo had started to make its name, Sega was coming out, and they were starting to claw back their market share from Commodore. So while Commodore was doing very well, the video game crash was now over, and the rebound was coming. Growth was steady, but not growing, eventually shrinking, and the video game developers started to back away and stop developing ultimately for the Commodore. By the 1990s, demand for 8-bit computers had pretty much all but ceased as PC compatibles owned the market in the US. Commodore announced the C64 would be discontinued in 1995. However, in April 1994, Commodore 
would declare bankruptcy, and with that, everything they had in production, including the C-64, was discontinued. Many speculated that the C-64 sales were anywhere upward to 30 million units sold globally, though according to Commodore, the sales were around 12.5 million units, which is still a respectable number and still earned them a place in the Guinness Book of World Records. Now, the C64 spawned its own line of systems based on its architecture. There was the Commodore Educator 64, which was a C64 inside a pet case. This was designed primarily to compete with the Apple II, which had a hold on the U.S. educational market, which is why in school you played the Oregon Trail on an Apple. And the Educator 64 ultimately was not able to take that market away from the Apple, which is why when I went to school, I still played Oregon Trail on the Apple. And the SX64 was a luggable version of the C64. It included a full-color portable monitor and an integrated disk drive. It was heavy, but it was advertised with some really catchy music. Yeah, which I'll probably put uh, at the beginning of this episode. I just I just imagined it to be relatively kind of portable, but then having this really long extension cord. I mean, that's pretty much <laughs> they, what a luggable was. I mean, luggables are like the size of a briefcase, but they weigh like the, the weight of like a large dog. <laughs> there was also the Commodore 64 game system, which was a pared down version of the system that just didn't have a keyboard. The C64 ultimately would see a successor in the Commodore 128, which was designed to be a faster, more powerful unit. Later, Commodore would move into the Amiga line of computers to compete primarily with the growing IBM PC and PC compatibles that were taking the PC market by storm. More recently, there were actually two devices that were created to kind of celebrate the history and the memory of Commodore. This was the C64 Mini and the C64, um, and that's stylized as all one word, the C64. Um, these are emulation-based machines that can run both VIC-20 and Commodore 64 games. Um, you can actually load the games via a SD card or a USB drive, I think in some cases, and uh, you can play pretty much anything that was compatible for those uh, games. The Mini, as the name implies, is small. It, it was done to mostly fit into that style of like mini consoles, which was all the rage back like five years ago, where you had like the NES Mini, the SNES Mini, the PlayStation Mini, the Sega Mini. It was one of those mini things. The other system, just the C64, is also called the Maxi, and that has a full keyboard and actually fits the profile of an original Commodore 64. Though interestingly enough, according to people like the 8-bit guy, the, the Maxi is designed more to be based on the European model of the Commodore. The profile is like slightly off. Um, it, it was like one of those small details that I think only he could notice, but yeah, it's just interesting nonetheless. The Maxi and the Mini, I think, are worth looking into if you have interest in Commodore. It might be a little hard to find an actual Commodore 64 for a reasonable price with today's game market, but the C64 Mini typically sells for like 50 to 60 bucks regularly, and the Maxi, I think you can pick up when it's available for around 100 or 120, um, depending on where you're getting it from. Both are you know, HDMI compatible. You can load stuff via USB. They're pretty um, pretty strong machines. Modern. Yeah, pretty modern-based machines. You could also load Commodore 64 games onto a Raspberry Pi. Yeah, or a Mister, which apparently Mister runs 8-bit computers really well. So if you have a Mister project, um, you can load a Commodore Core and probably run it, if not better than the original could run. 
Well, there we go. And that's going to be our uh, our Commodore episode. Uh, we will eventually revisit Commodore. We'll talk about the Amiga at some point, uh, mostly so we can probably talk about Lemmings. Now, Seth, are you ready to buy, wait, pass a game? I am ready to buy, wait, or pass. I'm going to go first, though, because you went first last time. Uh, okay, that's fine. Uh, so this is going to be a, a real-time tactics game where you have to lead a team of specialists through a story-driven campaign. Ooh! And you have to sneak behind enemy lines and use your unique skills and develop a plan to unravel the mystery. And it's a set around a sci-fi property that you may or may not like a lot. I'm not sure if you like it a lot. You may like it a lot, or you may not even know you like it. It's Stargate Timekeepers. Okay. (laughs) being developed by creative forge and published by slytherine did you just have slytherine i yeah literally just did with uh with starship troopers all right well i will take a brief pause here so that we can uh look into this game and i'll get right back and we're back um, so Stargate Timekeepers, as Seth mentioned, is a real-time tactics game, which I don't think I've played a lot of real-time tactics games. I've played turn-based tactics games and real-time strategy games. I've also played turn-based strategy games, but I haven't played real-time tactics games, or that many at least that I can remember. It is a interesting looking game. It certainly looks nice in terms of graphical uh, fidelity. It looks beautiful in some of the screenshots I see. However, I am not actually a big Stargate fan. It's not that I don't like Stargate. I just haven't really watched any of Stargate. I think I watched a very little bit of SG-1, but I think I was watching it because I thought it was something else. <laughs> like, I turned on the TV, and it was on, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is something. And I was watching, and I was like, this isn't what I want to watch, and I turned the channel. So, it, not that I dislike Stargate, I just, I'm not that familiar with it, so I'm probably going to put this game down as a pass. Um, however, who knows, maybe I'll get really into Stargate this summer, and then I'll buy this game. Anyway, Seth, are you ready for your game? I am. All right, so this game, Seth, is being to developed by a best-selling and award-winning franchise developer. In this game, you'll play in four-player co-op action uh, sequences where you'll have to fight through swarms of enemies in visceral combat um, using a variety of melee and uh, weapons, both energy and non-energy. Are you curious? Yes. This is Warhammer 40k Darktide, developed by Fat Shark, and it's due out September 13th, 2022. Oh, we're going to take a short break while I do some research. And we're back. You know, I, I it's fun is I've seen this kind of over the years. When Warhammer first started having video games come out, uh, they usually had like one developer that did it. I'm pretty sure they have an open license where people can essentially make a Warhammer game as like either for free as or... long as they give games workshop some money no i think like at least with the non-40k stuff i think you can't do pre-age of sigmar but except for uh except for total war as explained to us by brent because total war has the pre-age of sigmar license D D does something similar but they have uh it's only specific portions of the game which warhammer may have as well yeah you may have only have specific portions because the game warhammer has a pretty deep lore 
Um, but no, I just have I've watched it kind of evolve where there's just now like a bunch of companies making Warhammer games. This is on my wish list, but I'm actually going to put this down as a wait. I liked Vermintide. I don't play a lot of games with a lot of people regularly. So if this is a game that's going to require a four player co-op, I might not buy it initially because I play more single player games than multiplayer games. So I don't have the people to play it with. But if it's going to be 40k Verbentide, I am excited about that. So that's it's not going to be a pass, but it's going to be a, it's going to be a wait. Nice. Uh, so that's going to be it. So if you want to uh, uh, listen to more episodes of the Classic Gaming Brothers, we're available where all podcast apps are able to be listened to. If you want to talk to the Classic Gaming Brothers, you can send us an email at classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com. You can also uh, follow us on social media. We're available. We have social media presence on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch. Our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch are at Classic Gaming Brothers. We even have a Twitter. It's CG Brothers Pod. And... We always ask if you could support us. You can tell some friends of yours that you like to listen to this podcast, but only if you do it in a really creepy manner where you come up behind them and say, I listen to Classic Gaming Brothers. If you can't do it that way, then we don't want you to tell anybody. No, no, no. Tell tell everybody and uh, and find us, rate us, and if you enjoyed the show, give us a review and write us something nice. I think I got everything. Is there anything else that I'm missing? Yeah, don't play games like my brother. And don't play games like my brother. I've been Zach. I I've been Seth. And we've been the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's That's right. That is right.